The New Statesman. Welcome to this special podcast brought to you by the New Statesman Spotlight team. We cover policy for those who shape it and the businesses it affects. I'm Emma Hazlitt. In this episode, we're discussing where can we get the money to fix the world's biggest problems? The world is currently facing multiple crises, from geopolitical conflicts to pandemics and climate change. But amid this turbulence, international aid budgets are being stretched as domestic issues take precedence. The UK has cut its overseas aid budget significantly, from 0.7 to 0.5% of gross national income. Meanwhile, low-income countries need more support than ever as they deal with the fallout of wars, extreme poverty, natural disasters and humanitarian issues. The costs involved are huge, and while aid still has a role to play, we need to look beyond grants to unlock funding on a bigger scale to fix these problems. As part of this, the UK needs to develop new models of financial support and work with other countries to reform global financial institutions. So, what could these new models look like? And how might partnership between high and low-income countries play a bigger role? Focusing on Africa, we're going to explore how innovative financial models, which rely less on aid and more on collaboration, could empower and future-proof communities. This episode is sponsored by One, a not-for-profit organisation which is focused on international development and campaigns to end extreme poverty and preventable disease by 2030. On the panel, we have Sarah Champion, Labour MP for Rotherham and Chair of the Cross-Party International Development Parliamentary Committee, James Mwangi, founder of Climate Action Platform for Africa, an organisation working to unlock Africa's potential as a global hub for climate action, and Hannah Ryder, CEO at Development Reimagined, an African-led and women-led international development consultancy. Welcome, everyone. Nice to have you all here. Sarah, can we start with you, please? Perhaps you can kick things off for me by outlining the main problems of the UK's current approach to aid and development finance and explain a little bit about what we should be doing differently. Okay. Um, well, let me preface this by saying that I'm a Labour MP, not a government MP. So um, take my views uh, with that political bias. But I mean, what we've seen, particularly in the last three, four years, is um, a real lack of consistency and predictability when it comes to UK aid. There's been um, three large cuts to our aid programme, um, some at very short notice. And it has really, I mean, obviously the financial impact of that has been immense on some low income countries and particularly the um, projects that we were funding. But also, um, I think in terms of our credibility on the international stage, we've taken a really big hit on that. I mean, what I would like to um, sort of focus on is, I think, what the UK could do and should do more of is working on the global stage with a lot of the private finance companies. Um, I mean, the UK has always been very good at uh, debt relief, but we're seeing some of the um, most outrageous um, examples of sort of debt exploitation coming from the private sector. And the reason the UK could take a real lead on this is because a lot of the legislation for these big debts come under the UK or the US. And uh, we recently did an inquiry on my um, committee about this. And we said that the UK should at the very least look at um, changes in legislation so that this sort of vulture funding that's going on um, is, is stopped under our jurisdiction. But unfortunately, the government's response was disappointing. It said that it, 
preferred to stick to market-based solutions. What's interesting now, though, is in um, the New York Assembly, they're looking at bringing forward a bill that could challenge this. And I really hope if that goes forward, then the UK will follow. But also, I think what we need to be doing much, much more of, particularly when we have scant resources, is looking at prevention and looking at asking people on the ground how we can come up with sustainable support for them. Because that, again, it, it's not about giving loans. It's about giving grants, but giving them to the people who actually know what's going on and use them most effectively. Just very quickly, can you give a couple of examples of the kind of exploitation we're talking about? Oh, I mean, we're looking at um, a number of countries around the world where um, their debt burdens are more than, you know, all of their um, cost of providing their health systems, um, their education and tackling climate change. So that's just servicing the debts. That's not even repaying the debt. So when a country's got that sort of burden, um, it makes it impossible to um, sustain itself in the long term. So, I mean, that should never, ever be happening, but that's what we're seeing increasingly. And Hannah, can I bring you in on this? What What are your thoughts on this situation and how are we kind of going to get those big chunks of funding through? Are there, are there big reforms or changes that need to happen on a global level? I think it is a case of everything all at once. We shouldn't be stopping trying to push on UK aid. We shouldn't be stopping trying to push on those um, vulture fund reforms and financial sector reforms, which which the UK has had before, uh, also around the time of the highly indebted poor uh, countries initiative, which was um, for, for debt relief. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of innovation that's really required because, look, we're in a system which has been around for many years. The Bretton Woods institutions, IMF and the World Bank, which we all know about, um, have been around for 80 years. This year is their 80-year anniversary. But you know, when they were created, when they were designed, they had few African countries, most definitely as part of their design. We just had four African countries because the vast majority of the others were colonized. And so it is not a surprise that this system isn't really working for them. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Sarah was talking about how many countries have got really high debt servicing costs. And part of that is private sector. But one of the issues is that most countries do not even have enough finance at all to be able to, you know, give basic level of services to citizens. So Kenya, I'm, I'm a Kenyan. Um, and it, to ensure every single Kenyan has got access to safe drinking water, a little bit of electricity, get the internet, you know, just, just those basics. Uh, we've calculated that Kenya needs to be spending 14 to 21 billion US dollars a year from both domestic and external sources of finance. But doing that, it, 14 to 21 might not sound like a lot, but it's 14 to 21% of Kenya's GDP, right? Um, but at the same time, when Kenya goes to the World Bank or goes to get, you know, even goes onto the Eurobond market, Kenya's spending trying to get 300 or 400 million US dollars at a time. If it's going at that kind of pace, it's really impossible for a country like Kenya to actually really reduce poverty at the kind of rate that's really required and definitely not to meet the sustainable development goals. I think that's one of the issues that our financial system, whether it's UK aid, whether it's uh, the actual, the massive multilateral system, it's really not got to grips with how to do that. And I think that's where the innovation's really needed, the kind of collaboration that you were talking about at the beginning, Emma. It's interesting because, you know, what we've discussed so far is that it's almost like legacy problems that are preventing us from tackling poverty. But 
James, you know, we've got we've got other problems too, right? So there's climate change is, is one of the biggest issues facing everyone. What kind of financial support are African countries looking for from partners like the UK to kind of enable them to not only tackle poverty, but also tackle climate change? I think what I'll do there is I'll, I'll, I'll shift the question a bit because we tend to think of climate change as this burden correctly that's been created by the global north on Africa for which dealing with which dealing with the impacts of climate change needs to be paid for somehow. The problem we run into is the actual bill for dealing with the effects of all those greenhouse gases that contributed to the enrichment of almost every other continent other than Africa, particularly the rich parts of Europe and North America. The bill for actually dealing with that is not measured in hundreds of millions, which is what's being realized now. It's not measured in billions. It's not even measured in tens of billions. It's measured in hundreds of billions to trillions. And let's be realistic. There is no world in which development finance alone will cover that. So that's the first part. The first thing we have to sit with is there's a fundamental injustice that's almost baked in, which is the people who are suffering the most from climate change have a claim on the rest of the world that the world is never going to meet. The second thing, though, that that first injustice, which can drive you crazy, it almost did drive me crazy. The second thing that it can sometimes obscure is that the biggest levers for fighting climate change and undertaking meaningful climate action largely lie in the hands of those same places that are suffering the brunt of it today. What do I mean by that? The IPCC report and all of the analysis on what it'll take to actually address the climate crisis says that we need to do three crucial things. We need to preserve and ideally expand, protect and expand our natural carbon sinks, our rainforests, our savannah grasslands, our mangroves, and so on. We need to rapidly decarbonize every aspect of human production and consumption. It's not just about the coal power plants. It's also about how we make the polyester for some of our clothes. It's also about how we cultivate our food and how much meat we eat, right? So we need to decarbonize all of that at a very rapid pace. And then thirdly, we need to invent from scratch a massive industry that doesn't exist today, which is focused on removing greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. Each of these three pieces is in every report that allows us to get to a livable 2070. And the thing that the old way of thinking of Africa as a victim obscures is that Africa is the place to do all three. And actually, the role of the development finance is actually to catalytically invest in unlocking this potential. I'll make it very concrete with just one example. Hannah and Sarah were brilliant in outlining some of the challenges that a country like Kenya and many other African countries face in even mobilizing a few billion dollars for their development. But what if I told you I could make 1% of global industrial emissions disappear, or global emissions, annual emissions disappear at the stroke of a pen with one set of investments into Africa? You'd be really excited about it. All you'd need to do is take one industry, aluminium, and change where Africa's exports of raw bauxite are processed into aluminium using electricity and actually build out renewable energy, 60% of the world's best solar, 50 times the world's renewable energy demand by 2050 is available in Africa. No one is investing in it. If we invested in that renewable energy capacity, 
And we used it to take the aluminium that's being imported and processed it on continent. It would entail 250,000 jobs, almost $40 billion in annual revenue, and a reduction in global emissions of 1%. You have not invented a single new process. You have not changed a single industrial step. All you've done is taken things that are done in the wrong place today from a climate and from a justice perspective and move them to a place where they can create jobs, unlock climate value, and create a pathway for economic development. And that's the way we need to be thinking. There's dozens of these opportunities where addressing climate and addressing poverty actually converge. It's very, it's, I mean, it must be very frustrating for, for all of you to kind of be aware that there are these very simple strategies around that are not being deployed. I mean, Hannah, just before we came, came on, you were saying that, you know, a lot of this stuff is just really simple. It's not rocket science. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the new models of financial support for developing countries that are beginning to kind of appear? Seriously, this isn't rocket science. Um, and the fact is things are happening. I think James made a really clear point there too. Solar energy is being dispersed. It is, it's being built, but it's just not going to the African continent. One amazing statistic, which I always, I always talk about uh, more recently, is uh, the fact that the African continent has got 13 gigawatts of solar across, you know, this is a, this is a continent three times the size of, of China, almost four times the size of China. Um, Japan, 100 times smaller, um, has got 79 gigawatts. So, you know, it's possible to get a lot, a lot of renewable energy um, shifting to the right places, but we have to change models. We have to, we have to find, um, and, and there are ways. An example is uh, one, one idea that my firm's come up with um, and we're seeing multilateral um, organizations taking it up is a borrower's club. So it's modeled on this idea of the Grameen Bank. I don't know if you know about the Grameen Bank. It's microfinance. came up in the 1970s. And it was the idea of being able to give loans to villagers, basically, who couldn't get loans from banks because they were seen as too risky. Um, they also didn't have enough collateral, right? You know, they, they didn't own their land or anything like that. But what this did was they gave them loans and so they and had a kind of group trust system to ensure that the loans were repaid and also at, at a lower rate. And it expanded lending massively and was really transformational for individuals' financial inclusion globally. And we think that the international financial institutions could use this kind of model for all of their lending to um, low-income countries and African countries. There are lots of other ideas. Um, talking about Kenya, the President Ruto has talked about um, a globally applied financial transactions tax as another example. And that's, you know, a tax in the private sector that money could be going into, for example, a loss and damage fund, which would be dealing with some of the issues that, uh, that Sarah was talking about, James has also talked about. And um, others are also talking about uh, reform of the Bretton Woods institutions, significant reform. So, for example, giving African countries doubling their quotas um, in the in the IMF, or you know, doubling the amount of um, capital that they can get from um, World Bank and so on. So, there are many ideas, and what they need to be done is just brought into reality, and we can make them happen. Hannah's absolutely right in everything she's saying. And one of my frustrations is um, in the UK, we fund uh, BII, which is a, a development finance institute. And uh, many countries have this sort of model um, and they are usually wholly owned by the, um, the state, uh, but they take taxpayers' money. 
um, and then they invest that money in projects around the world that have a development um, focus and try and bring in private sector um, income to support it. So it's a, it's a great model. But one of the problems we've found is um, they tend to go for the bigger projects. And I mean, uh, Hannah was talking about solar. And one of my frustrations is, and I, I very much come from um, uh, uh, women and girls position, if, if every household had some form of um, solar energy, then, uh, you know, children can get, uh, can do their education at home. Uh, it reduces early pregnancies. It enables uh, little micro businesses to set up. And there are countries around the world which could hugely benefit from this, but we're not seeing the development finance um, going into the countries themselves to develop their own solutions to these problems. So we're reliant on a couple of countries around the world um, and we sort of follow the same model all the time. And what it is, you know, these development finance initiatives, they need to make big investments and quite often what we need is something in between. So it, it's not a handout, it's not sort of small project funding, but it's not the tens of millions that the development finance initiatives do. And, and that seems to be a real gap in the market. And I, and I just think we, if we keep on doing what we're always doing, we're not going to see the change that we actually need. And it doesn't, it's not about investing more money, it's about being smarter and trusting people at a local level to invest that money more effectively than we can doing it at arm's reach. Well, I was just going to bring in the question of at the beginning of the um, podcast, I kind of mentioned the, the fact that the UK has cut its aid budget. Because we've cut our aid budget, trust between the UK and African countries has been eroded. Is there, is there a way of rebuilding that trust and making sure that our partnerships with African countries is on an equal footing? I think, I think there is a way. Um, but the most important starting point is to listen to what African governments are talking about and what their real concerns are and their constraints are. And I think one of the major challenges is that quite often the, and even, you know, what Sarah was talking about with regards to the development finance institutions, you've got people who are, you know, have great ideas, but they're not actually necessarily responsive to what the development plan what a development agenda is, African countries have got the uh, Agenda 2063, which is a kind of blueprint for development up to 2063. We've also got SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals, of course. And each country has got their plans. And what's very frustrating is when you get new ideas coming up, but they're not actually linked to what those plans are. And that's also where you get the worst kind of spend. So... I think there's an opportunity to rebuild trust through that, but also, you know, many of the things that we've talked about, UK working um, in the multilateral institutions for that reform, the kinds of innovations that we've talked about, doing the uh, reforms in the private sector, using the, the fact that there is a UK financial industry um, and using legislation. There are so many different um, possibilities for the UK. It's just really taking a holistic approach to all the, even trade. Um, is a great tool uh, as well for building trust and um, and and ultimately it's not just about building trust it's also about coming up to realizing that this is actually in UK's interest to be partnering to diversify sources of trade to diversify the um, the types of investment that the UK is doing you don't need to be doing the old types of investment all the time why should the private sector be 
uh, continuing to invest in extractive industries when there is this big solar and wind industry that the UK could actually be um, involved in and, and supporting. I, I also think that trust is a, is a two-way street um, and, and we need to be trusting other countries and other partners to know what they need and what benefits them. And of course, that doesn't mean to say giving away um, accountability or transparency, but I think it's sort of, it is shifting away from apologies for bringing it up, but that whole colonial approach of we know best and we'll tell you what you can and can't use our money for and you ought to be grateful. Um, and, and that didn't work. It doesn't work. And if we want to go back to being a trusted partner, we need to give a little bit as well. We, we actually have a decent roadmap for what it takes for countries to transform from uh, economically dysfunctional to high-performing economies, right, that are generating opportunity and growing at the rate at a rate that generates prosperity for their population. And it almost always is anchored in a national vision or even a local level vision of an area of competitiveness, an area where a country or a community can do something better than anyone else can. And I think that's a lens we need to apply to some of these things because part of what's lost in a lot of the conversations is there's a lot of discussion of how do we help African countries address poverty, there's a lot less discussion of what are the gains to everyone from investing in the areas that Africa can do things better than anyone else. And that's an important area in part because the answers to that question that were true even five years ago are fundamentally incorrect now because of the greater understanding of the rate, scale, and speed of the shift that will need to happen from a carbon intensive to a decarbonized planet. In a sense, all of our economic theories are built on a world that doesn't exist anymore. A world in which skills and, in, and IP were difficult to move and where energy was easy to move and raw materials were easy to move. We're suddenly in a world where renewable energy, coal and petroleum are easy to move to wherever you have a factory that has people who've been doing this work for years. But solar isn't. And so it actually makes sense to move more of our productive activity to where the energy and the raw materials are, which truly happens to be the place where the world should be investing because those are the places where the largest number of people are. So it's understanding that and then going back to all of our plans, all of our assumptions about where it makes sense to do things and then say, well, action, is there something about this that's good for the investor? that's good for the country and that's good for the community and that allows them the opportunity with the investment to raise themselves out of poverty. No country has ever been raised out of poverty by another one. But smart development assistance and partnership can allow people to raise themselves out of poverty and into their profit positioning among the, the, the community of nations. So James, let's stick with you on that point. Because, um, I, you know, I, I'm quite interested in, you're obviously here to talk about Africa's potential journey to carbon positivity, potentially. But how is helping Africa to, to get there going to benefit, for example, the UK or the rest of the world? Well, in a couple of ways, right? Firstly, it's just the most efficient way to get there, right? One of the things I omitted in my earlier example, taking one material, green aluminium, what it would take the cheapest way to do green aluminium 
is going to be to move energy and build energy infrastructure at massive scale in Africa. There's another example than the scale of small business and the scale of big business. There's something about that. But there's also something that says, if you industry, if you build new green industry in the least industrialized continent on earth, you're accomplishing a few things. The first one is you don't have to go through the difficult process of outcompeting dirty industry with green. It's greenfield. If I, I'm overusing the color green, but it's greenfield. You can actually leapfrog to the new from the beginning. There's folks who say, well, Africa needs to go through coal and petroleum and so on. And I say, when I moved into my house, I didn't first buy a VCR, then a DVD player, and then eventually connect to Netflix. I went to the latest technology. So there's something there that says building green industry in these places is actually going to be easier than in other places. There's another thing, which is it creates a diversification of supply, right? We've seen the challenges the world has faced from being overly dependent on one or two places that are the concentrated place where all manufacturing is done. Diversifying that is good for everybody. And then finally, it turns 1.5, soon to be 2.5 billion people from being quote unquote, a threat, these folks might migrate to us, they need of assistance, et cetera, to being a new source of energy for the global economy and a new source of energy for the global economy and a new market. And it can seem ridiculous or absurd to picture folks being excited about the Nigerian market, but go and read what people were saying about India or China even 20 years ago or 25 years ago. And these shifts can happen extremely quickly, but they require a bit of imagination. But from that imagination, livelihoods can be transformed on the, in, in the various countries, but also fortunes can be made by those who have just enough foresight to see the transition and invest in it. And I mean invest, not donate to that transition in ways that are beneficial, not just to them, but to the world. Well, let's stick on the China point, because that's really interesting. Hannah kind of what you do, right? It's you kind of talk to China, you talk to African countries and you help them work together. China has a, a huge influence on the African continent. You know, how should the UK be responding to that? Well, I think what the what Chinese government has done, many stakeholders have done in China, is really do what James has just talked about. Take seriously the proposition which African governments do talk about that the next world manufacturing hub um, green manufacturing hub this time is going to be the African continent. And if you take that proposition seriously, then, then you will most definitely invest in the continent in lots of different ways. So you will, for example, be ready to provide infrastructure lending that is going to be bringing several countries together that hadn't been brought together before. You'll be willing to invest in cement plants or refineries that people wouldn't even imagine would be plausible or, you know, other types, other foreign investors would just never look at in that same way. And they would think are really risky, but in fact, they end up making quite a lot of money. This is the China story. It's really about taking the African continent seriously. But at the same time, there's, of course, there's plenty that can be improved there's a lot that can be done. And that's, what, that's why I do what I do um, to make sure that African governments get the more, more and more out of that relationship and the various relationships. But if the UK can learn anything, it's to take that proposition seriously and then 
use its own strengths and its own capabilities to then invest. And that means, for instance, you know, getting the private sector to go into other types of industries and sectors beyond extractives. It means, you know, using UK aid in quite a different kind of way than it has been before to kind of support industrialization, the green agenda, et cetera. Um, yeah, simple as that. Like I said at the beginning, simple it's simple as that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Sarah, maybe you can talk a little bit then about what, what debt relief can what role debt relief can play in helping developing countries? It, it's very uh, interesting, Hannah, talking about China, because um, when I saw your background, Hannah, um, I thought, oh, <laughs> I, I need to be careful here because I, I have concerns about the way that China finances, because um, we see a lot of countries, particularly um, low-income countries and particularly countries in Africa, that uh, they haven't been treated as equal partners. And China um, is either um, sort of owning some critical infrastructure um, or is uh, putting really some quite untenable debts on countries. And I think what the UK has historically always done well is tried to be a more sort of honest and upfront partner um, and, and, and negotiated in a more transparent way than we're seeing with some of the uh, investments that are coming out of China, but China's got money, and you know w when your population needs support, we're going to go to uh, where the money is, and I I do understand that. I think one of the things that the UK is trying to do um, uh, much much more is uh, offer guarantees, and since twenty one twenty two, our level of guarantees has gone up by four hundred and fourteen percent. And a lot of these are going to um, the African Development Bank, for example. And my committee has welcomed that uh, underwriting effectively. But one of our concerns is it's done on the basis that none of those um, guarantees get called in. And, and I think what we ought to be looking at is rather than um, underwriting, it's working with countries to develop a long-term sustainable way to get money. And one of the things that um, Mia Motley, for example, um, with her Bridgetown initiative is, is arguing, which I think a lot of countries are giving lip service to, but no one's really moved on that, is looking at the level of interest that uh, low-income countries can get loans for. And it seems entirely uh, unfair, um, if not downright outrageous, that uh, if you're a low-income country trying to invest in your own health infrastructure, for example, you will pay a massive um, percentage uh, on that debt, uh, on that loan, sorry, much, much more than another country would. So you're almost um, buying in low-income countries into a no-win situation. And that is something that I think we need to be looking at very seriously. Another thing is... Um, when we're looking at countries that are eligible for ODA, um, Overseas Development Assistance, we look at um, G&I per capita. We don't look at vulnerability. And the committee at the moment is doing an inquiry into small island developing states. And some of them, because they're very small populations and some of them have a very, or a couple of very rich individuals that live on the island, that makes them ODA ineligible, whereas it, in terms of climate change, they're really, really facing a lot of risk at the moment. So again, I go back to, we need to be looking at risk, we need to be looking at potential, uh, and we need to be looking at effectively taking Mia Motley's idea forward and developing a new way 
to finance, all of which for me um, is underpinned by climate risk and therefore loss and damage. So there's a couple couple more um, topics that I want to focus on. We've just we've touched on multilateral development banks, um, but I just wanted to check with Hannah and see whether she thinks that they're they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. Do we need reform to multilateral development banks, or or are, are they kind of you know getting on with things? I think there is a need for all to change um, and to do better um, with the. With the international financial institutions, they, they're not doing enough. They can do a lot better. We have had a number of reports in, the, uh, in recent years about how, for instance, the Bretton Woods institutions can be using their capital in more creative ways. Uh, they don't have to be so risk averse. And that would mean that they can unlock a lot of money to actually uh, share uh, across with, um, with, uh, with the countries that need it most. They can do a lot more to the analytical tools so that they don't hold up uh, decisions being made so that money can be flowing out a lot faster and event- and actually then repaid even faster. There's so much that can be done. But I think it comes back to this question about what is their purpose? And I think the multilateral institutions and a lot of the bi- even bilateral um, lending and, and grants, we've got to go back to the fundamental question of what are they trying to do? What are they taking seriously? What propositions are they really taking seriously? And I think in the past, the way that that the aid industry has grown, the way that even the climate industry has grown, it's as if we're trying to deal with some little problem over here that doesn't really affect global growth and that we can kind of just have a small allocation, a few million, a few billion, and that's going to be fine. But actually, what we need to take seriously is this idea that we're trying to deliver global growth. And if we're trying to deliver global growth, then there's a lot that we can do that is different. It's not rocket science, but it can be different. And, and we can reimagine um, many of the tools that we have. Um, and I think that that's what the Bretton Woods institutions need to do, and especially this year, turning 80, it's time. Okay. Well, look, you know, thank you all for for being here and for joining me for this discussion. I've got one last question. I think, you know, I'd like to go round round the room um, and ask everyone this question, which is what what is the best way for the UK to strike a balance between traditional financing like grant aid and, and newer, more empowering finance mechanisms? Do we need to retain some kind of traditional aid? Can the two models complement each other? Um, Sarah, let's start with, with your views on that. Um, I, I don't think it's an either or. Um, so I think the BII, our Development Finance Institute, does a great job. Um, I think there are some um, cases where absolutely we need to be giving um, straight aid. But I also think we could be a little bit braver about thinking how we can work in partnership with countries around the world to get smaller amounts of money to the people at a local level who really know how best to invest it and invest it wisely. Uh, James, what what are your thoughts on that? I think that if you look at the the sums that are needed to enable the world to transition out of poverty in line with the SDGs and out of the climate crisis, it's clear that this needs to be a whole of economy uh, orientation. And we need to be asking where are the most efficient places to allocate capital to achieve our shared goals of inclusive prosperity on the one hand, and a version of climate disaster and many other things on the other. And I think in doing that, it really, 
I, I think I agree with Sarah that there's a role for development aid, but I think we need to really take seriously the proposition that it is intended as a catalytic intervention that on its own, it is a band-aid that cannot solve the problems that it is targeted at because they exceed any realistic scale of development aid. And so we need to be asking, what are we doing to trigger positive feedback loops, new kind of system dynamics that solve these problems systemically? We need to think in a systemic way and recognize that development is not something that's done to people or for people. It's done with the people and ideally by the people. And that means figuring out how is a small bit of completely non-returnable capital allowing people to get on a ladder that allows them to then invest their own time, energy, resources, and talent to generally raise their economies up. It's a challenge. But the exciting thing is, for maybe the first time in a really long time, there's an obvious answer to the question that um, a concerned taxpayer will ask, which is, what is in it for me? Why am I sending money to that country? And the answer is, if you do it right, this is the best way to avert climate catastrophe. That is a good answer. Um, and Hannah? Not sure I can do better than that. I, I would say that uh, we do, we definitely need, uh, we definitely need uh, aid. I think it should, uh, it's necessary, but it is insufficient. Um, and not just in terms of volumes at the moment. But even if there were at the volume that the UK intended it to be initially with, with the legislative target back in the day, it, even if it were at those volumes, it would still be insufficient. There's, there's necessary um, other types of, of work. We've got to take a holistic approach. Um, and that means using all the different tools in the UK's footprint globally. Um, that includes multilateral reform, using those organizations, the international organizations in a way that really... Um, shapes to really support uh, support African countries to grow. Uh, it also means uh, using trade, foreign direct investment, um, even, even UK tourism flows, you know, all of these things actually matter. Even what the British Museum have just done with, uh, you know, sending or lending uh, Ghanaian, um, uh, the Ghanaian artifacts back to Ghana is actually going to be a potential for creating tourism. Uh, in those countries, that means extra revenues to people. And so all of these things really matter. So the more that the UK can actually really think about how its footprint can be more positive globally, um, the better. It's not just a question of aid. Thanks to all of you for coming and discussing the issues and giving your insights on how we can find the money to fix the world's biggest problems. Thank you to our panellists, Sarah Champion, James Wangi and Hannah Ryder. You can find more coverage of Spotlight's policy reporting at www.newstatesman.co.uk forward slash spotlight. My name's Emma Hazlitt and this episode was produced by Catherine Hughes. Thank you for listening.